0: podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 1015 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, actually the very end of chapter 15 is where we'll be today, beginning in verse 36. If you brought your own Bible with you, then that's great. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this and a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for our passage today, it begins on page 870, 870. Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 36 is where we will be. I'd like to ask you, to think with me for a moment and consider when was the last time that you asked a fellow church member a question that you knew was going to be uncomfortable for you and the other person? When's the last time you disagreed with a fellow church member, but the solution to your disagreement was something that could be commended by other church members. When was the last time you knowingly set aside your own freedoms or you willingly suffered some pain of loss for the sake of showing love for a fellow Christian or even a non-Christian? Friends, today my heart, like many of yours is heavy, and there are certainly many reasons to be heavy-hearted today. My heart breaks for those families who have lost children at the hands of a wicked young man in Uvalde, Texas. My heart rages at the thought that there may have been protocols or even cowardice that prevented law enforcement from stopping him sooner. And my heart grieves that we live in a fallen world where human dignity and life itself have to be defended with violence. It's unusual for me to be this direct in application, but I'm going to be even more so today. There was other news this week that hits close to home for us who are a part of First Baptist Diana and maybe others who are a part of Southern Baptist Churches that make my heart heavy this morning. During the 2021 annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, the messengers who were present overwhelmingly approved of a third-party investigation into the dealings of something that's called the Executive Committee of the SBC. This investigation was to look for and to consider the possibility that there might be evidence of unaddressed sexual abuse among SBC churches and agencies. Not only did that report come out last week, but it was horrifically damning. The report shows undeniable evidence that there has been an intentional and consistent effort on the part of those who knew the most to evade further investigation and to limit liability. Rather, than to deal with sin or to minister to those who have been victimized. In addition, some of the staff of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention or the lawyers that they kept on retainer, we now know were keeping unofficial record of abusers spanning the last 20 years, which totals more than 700 names. All pastors, staff, or church volunteers or leaders who were credibly accused or, as in most cases, actually convicted of some form of sexual abuse. At the very least, such a list could have been used to make it harder for convicted abusers to jump from one church to the next without dealing with their sin. Let me just say clearly that this is Wickedness of the most heinous type. When those who are supposed to be trusted the best to care for the souls of others are the very ones who manipulate that trust and abuse those underneath their care, this is damnable wickedness. It is monstrously wicked. But the truth is that local churches are not immune from monstrous wickedness. Church members and pastors are not immune from outrageous and scandalous sin. And this is why, brothers and sisters, especially if you're a member of First Baptist Diana, this is a pastoral heart that's reaching out to you this morning. This is why we have to not pretend that we're okay and that we don't need somebody else's help. Can't pretend that stuff. As a matter of fact, as part of our membership covenant, the promises that we make with each other, we promise that we are no longer going to isolate portions of our lives and keep them off limits. We invite other brothers and sisters in Christ to invade our lives. This is part of what it means to be a church member. So if you have been the victim of somebody else's sin, or if you right now are trapped in and snared by shameful sin, then don't bear that stuff by yourself. Reach out. Don't be quiet about it. Don't isolate yourself thinking it'll just go away. You could talk to me. You could call me anytime. Uh, If you're a member, you ought to have my cell phone number. If you don't, just ask me. I'll tell you. Reach out to another elder. Reach out to a fellow church member. Let's deal with sin together. This is one of the main reasons why Jesus instituted the local church. The author of Hebrews reminds us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Now this is a clear admonition to meet together with your church members on the Lord's day. There certainly is that. But it's about more than just showing up. The verses assume that the weekly gathering of the saints will serve as a sort of rhythm and hub of life-on-life discipling efforts. Regular Sundays together keep relationships among church members familiar and Bible-centered. All of this, as I said, is more specific than I am often to be on a Sunday morning, and I'm still in the introduction. If you have questions about any of this stuff and you want to talk about it more, then uh, first, if you're a member of First Baptist Dana, you can know that I'll probably mention something more about all of this in our upcoming members meeting on June the 12th. And this topic will certainly be repeated in our Wednesday evening prayer times and our Sunday evening, uh, you know, once a month prayer and praise gatherings. But I believe that our passage today does speak directly to the sort of face-saving and individualistic and self-centered way of thinking and acting that has so pervaded American evangelicalism to the point where many church members expect to live isolated and autonomous, as isolated and autonomous units. So often this is the expectation of local church members. And many local churches never publicly address sin. And many churches and Christians, though they would never admit such a thing, care nothing about the spiritual well-being of other churches or Christians. Well, that's the end of my unusual introduction, but let me introduce our text for today in a normal way that I would, which again, I believe leads us into, at the very least it allows for the kind of stuff I've been pointing out this morning. It may even evoke such a sentiment. Our passage today spans the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. Chapter 15 ends and chapter 16 begins. But the chapter and verse delineations in the Bible, they didn't, they're not original, they didn't come for a long time after, so I don't feel bad for having divided it up in the way that I have. In fact, I think that Luke intentionally ordered his content in the book of Acts using certain phrases and statements to tell us where each section ends and begins. Specifically, Luke repeatedly used similar refrains at the end of each of his sections. He kept saying, at the end of of each section of the book of Acts, something along the lines of the word of God or the church was multiplying or increasing or being strengthened or being built up. For example, Christianity grew first in Jerusalem after Pentecost, you might remember. But there arose a fundamental threat to the unity of the church when there was an administrative bottleneck in the daily distribution of the resources. Some of the church members were being overlooked in a very practical way. And the problem was solved by appointing a handful of godly deacons. I think a great solution to a lot of practical church problems. That was in Acts chapter six. Luke tells us afterwards, Acts chapter six, verse seven, after this uh, uh, problem was solved, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Threat addressed, crisis averted, church grows. The next threat was from persecution. This was in Acts chapter 8. The church in Jerusalem was being persecuted terribly, and a man named Saul of Tarsus was leading the way. But the risen Lord Jesus confronted Saul personally and saved his wretched soul and even made Saul of Tarsus become the leading Christian evangelist and missionary. And afterward, Luke says, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, So... The church throughout all Judea and and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The same result happened when God stopped King Agrippa, king of Judea, King Herod Agrippa, from persecuting what was apparently the same population of Christians as Saul of Tarsus was after. God supernaturally struck him down at the very moment when Herod seemed to be the most powerful. And after that, Acts chapter 12, verse 24. Luke said the word of God increased and multiplied. There's a pattern I see emerging. The churches are growing. The gospel is being preached. Sinners are being converted. And then some threat to the universal church arises. Then God solves the threat, either supernaturally or by directing his people to do so. And the churches grow all the more. The gospel is preached all the more and sinners are converted all the more. And that's where we are at the end of our fourth section of the book of Acts this morning. Now, if you were here last week, then, uh, or if you've been reading through the book of Acts between Sundays, then you might remember that Acts 15 dealt with yet another major threat to the universal church's unity. Some preachers from Judea were teaching a faith plus works gospel, telling the Gentile believers that they could not be saved Unless they were circumcised and kept or observed the law of Moses. This was a direct contradiction to the gospel of God's grace, which is to be received by faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, which the apostles have been preaching from the beginning. And therefore, it was a fundamental threat to Christian unity. But this time, it was theological and pastoral, not merely practical and administrative. Oh, the apostles, who were still mostly in Jerusalem, Uh, They, along with the elders and the members of the church there in Jerusalem, they decided to send a letter to the largely Gentile churches who were being troubled by these faith plus works teachers. The letter clarified that Christian unity was not to be found in observing the law of Moses, but in clinging to Christ and in following him. The letter also reaffirmed Christian unity, this unity that was shared between Jews and Gentiles alike. And it asked Gentile Christians to lovingly bear with their Jewish brethren who had had a hard time letting go of the ceremonial laws that had impacted their lives for so long. This letter was being sent out by the hands of Paul and Barnabas, as well as Judas and Silas, who were leaders among the Jerusalem church. Uh, That is, they were Jewish Christians with a good reputation and a pastoral heart. And when the letter was received by the churches in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, and elsewhere, The result was rejoicing and edification, strengthening. In fact, Luke concluded this fourth section of Acts in the same way as the previous three. Luke wrote in Acts chapter 15, verse five, the last verse of our passage this morning. So therefore, thus the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. But that's where our passage ends. It begins with a pastoral visitation. It progresses into a practical disagreement, and it shows us what prudent discipleship can look like. Finally, in the end, our passage promotes unity and growth in the kingdom of Christ, even across geographical and ethnic barriers. With that as a bit of an introduction, you needed to know that Acts 15 background. Would you stand with me as I now read our primary passage for today? Standing is just one of the ways that we try to show respect for God's word And I'll read Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36, down to 16, verse 5. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him before because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. For those who like to take notes, you can see the main point or the main idea is uh, right there in your bulletin on the right hand inside flap of your bulletin. The main point should be at the top of there. Uh, and there's even a spot there to take some notes if you like to take notes. If you really are uh, someone who enjoys taking notes, that probably isn't enough space for you. Uh, but that's all right. You can use your own paper and pen if you like. Uh, this, is the, this sermon will have four points to it. Uh, the first, uh, looking at, especially at verse 36, this pastoral visitation in chapter 15. Now, then next will be the practical disagreement that we see in verses 37 to 41 of chapter 15 then prudent discipleship on display in the first three verses of chapter 16. And then finally, the last couple of verses of our passage this morning, four and five of 16, promoting unity. Don't worry if you didn't write all that stuff down. Hopefully they'll be behind me on the screen as we go. So point number one, a pastoral visitation. Yeah, screen behind. Pastoral visitation, looking especially at verse 36. Acts 15, 36 says that after some days wherein Paul and Barnabas were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord in Antioch, Paul says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, this is something like what Paul and Barnabas had done before, but it was also different. Remember that Paul's first missionary journey was completed by setting up or establishing elders in every church which he and Barnabas had planted along the way. This is Acts chapter 14. Luke said that Paul and Barnabas also strengthened the souls of the disciples and committed these young churches to the Lord when they left. When we were studying through Acts chapter 14, I made a point of arguing that this sort of practical and ordinary work of discipling Christians and raising up elders is the stuff of profound and powerful Christian mission. I also pointed out that this work is often something that feels to be very slow and mundane, uh, uninteresting. We don't often see spiritual growth in terms of days or weeks, but in terms of years and decades. Now, that whole sermon on Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 28 still applies with this brief expression in verse 36 of chapter 15. Let us return and visit the brothers and see how they are. All that stuff I would just say again in a similar fashion, but today I want to emphasize how it's distinct this phrase from what we've already seen. And that is the necessity of ongoing pastoral care and Christian discipling. The phrase, see how they are is so open-ended see how they are. I mean, what is it that Paul really wants to see? Does he want to see if the brothers in Iconium are doing well financially Does he want to see if the church in Lystra is bigger or smaller than it was before? Does he want to see if the congregation in Derby is being persecuted? Well, maybe. All that stuff is important. It seems to me, however, that the phrase see how they are is generally aimed though at their spiritual health. I think it's to be taken like this, that Paul wanted to know how are these churches doing spiritually? We might ask, is the church in Lystra still united in the gospel? Are the brothers in Iconium loving and forgiving and teaching one another? Is the church in Derby dealing honestly with sin among its members, or is it naively overlooking some potentially disastrous doctrine or practice? These are the constant concerns of any good pastor, and these ought to be the focus of every church member too. Some of us already know that the New Testament teaches us that pastors or elders are a gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to local churches. Ephesians chapter 4 says that Christ has given pastors, elders, shepherd teachers, the way that it's put there, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, that is, to spiritual maturity. And to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is to say that pastors or elders are certainly to lead in building up or edifying the church members. But every church member is to actively participate in the building up of one another. This is explicitly what the Bible teaches. And we all need to participate for a very practical reason that it's not natural And it's not easy. It takes more than just a handful to do this task of making each one of us mature in the faith. Friends, we all need someone to check in on us and to see how we are. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to care enough about the well being of our soul such that they're willing to enter into our lives and poke around a bit. We need accountability. Where are you letting sin get the best of you? Let me help. We all need encouragement. I see where God is working in you there. We all need instruction. This is what the Bible teaches about what we're to do with our time, with our finances, with our families, with our sexual desire, and with our aspirations. And we all need discipline. What you said there isn't right. What you did there is sin. This is what the Bible says you ought to say. This is what Jesus commands you to actually do or not do. And brothers and sisters, this is not just true of us as individuals. This is true of local churches as well. In our passage today, Paul and Barnabas were planning to travel back through various towns where they preached the gospel and established local churches. And their goal was to see how those churches were. We too, FBC Diana, we care about how other churches are doing. We care about Redemption Baptists in Nacogdoches and their senior pastor, Wesley Burke. We care about First Baptist Salado, where Scott Mesher with Reaching and Teaching is a member. We care about Walnut Creek and Shady Grove right here in Diana. We care about New Hope just at the road with Pastor Tony Pierce. We care about Harlton Baptist with senior pastor Brent Lowry and many others. We care about how they are doing because we share the same love for Christ and we share the same Christian mission to make disciples, baptizing and teaching them until Christ comes. We care about how they're doing because we know something about them and we have some relational connection with them. We care about all true churches, but there is a sense in which we simply can't care for all of them in the same way those that we know better we want to know and care for well we want to pray for them we want to help support them we want to encourage them toward faithfulness and we want to challenge and instruct them in sound doctrine as we have the opportunity to do that friends the love and care that paul and barnabas exemplify when they say let us visit the brothers and see how they are is the sort of love and care that should motivate all of us to to take the same kind of initiative. Let's actively build one another up in the knowledge and the grace of Christ so that on that day, when we stand before our King and Savior, we will look back on a life well spent in service to Him and to His people. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Colossians chapter 1. He said, Christ is, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Seemingly Paul has in mind that day when he's going to stand before the Lord alongside those who are under his care. Those were his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and present them to their master. And Paul said, for this, I toil struggling with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works In me, God help all of us to have that same sort of mentality and love. Number two, a practical disagreement. In chapter 15, verses 37 to 41, this is what we're looking at now. Paul and Barnabas were perfectly united in their desire to return and visit the brothers in every city where they had preached the gospel, proclaimed the word of the Lord, but they were not united in their perspective on John Mark. They were so not united about John Mark that they separated from each other over their disagreement. But interestingly, their disagreement was resolved in a way that seemed good to the church in Antioch, since both Paul and Barnabas were commended by the brothers when they left. Let's consider these five verses in three questions. What was their sharp disagreement? Secondly, what was their solution and the third, why was it commended? Why was their solution commended by the brothers in Antioch? Okay, first, what was their disagreement? Well, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along with uh, them on the trip to visit the brothers, and Paul did not. This seems so clear. Verse 38 says, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. Uh, simply put, it seems like John Mark uh, was part of Paul's travel first missionary missionary journey, but for one reason or another, he returned to Jerusalem shortly after the trip began. You can read about this briefly in Acts chapter 13. It seems that Paul thought John Mark was not to be relied upon. And Paul didn't want to take that sort of guy on this next trip. But Barnabas, who was often extending uncommon grace and charity, he wanted to bring John Mark anyway. And so Luke says, in verse 39 of chapter 15, there arose a sharp disagreement. So, what was the solution? Well, we're told in verse 39 that they separated from each other. That's what the English standard says. The King James, as is so poetic, says they departed asunder. They parted company, says the NIV. Clearly, they could not both have what they wanted. It was an either or situation with no compromising option. They're either going to take John Mark with them or they're not. There's no no middle ground. They can't just take a leg of John Mark. You got to decide. So they decided to go their separate ways. Barnabas taking John Mark with him towards Cyprus and Paul taking Silas, one of those Jewish believers from Jerusalem, with him to Syria and Cilicia. This was their solution. Now, why was their solution commended by the brothers in Antioch? Verse 40 indicates that this departure was similar to Paul's and Barnabas's first sending off from Antioch back in chapter 13 of Acts. The whole group, two teams this time, were, we're told in Acts chapter 15, commended by the church to the grace of the Lord. This is verse 40 in Acts chapter 15. The idea seems to be that the church in Antioch entrusted both Paul and Barnabas to the hand of the Lord's providence. There was no obvious sin in Paul or Barnabas. And they had a decision to make, and the decision was a matter of wisdom. Paul thought it unwise to bring John Mark along. Barnabas thought it was just fine. So there was no way to compromise, but they did decide to separate and go their different ways. And the church in Antioch seems to have understood that the Lord was in charge of all of it, even the disagreement. Most importantly, The disagreement here neither hindered the mission. Churches were still strengthened, we're told in verse 41, nor did it permanently divide any Christians. Both Barnabas and John Mark are later mentioned as Paul's co-laborers. And Paul even mentions that John Mark became to him very useful in ministry. So their relationship wasn't severed entirely. Friends, is this how you disagree with fellow Christians? Does your disagreement with another church member result in a continued advancement of gospel mission? Do you still count that person who disagrees with you, a brother, a sister, a co-laborer in the mission of making disciples? Or are we more prone to cut off those with whom we disagree and to mean mouth them to others? Disagreement is bound to happen, but it doesn't have to be bad, even if it's sharp. And it doesn't have to blow everything up. Disagreement on an essential doctrine of Christianity is not okay. But disagreement on a secondary issue, well, it might just mean you need to join another church that aligns better with your personal convictions. And disagreement in areas of prudence or wisdom doesn't have to separate us at all. May God help us to know the difference between essentials, non-essentials, and wisdom or conscience issues. And may God help us to disagree in ways that can be commended by our fellow church members and even honoring to the Lord. Number three, prudent discipleship. This is looking at chapter 16, verses 1 to 3 now. And from chapter 16 onward, Luke focuses the Acts storyline on the Apostle Paul and his exploits as Christ's chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus to the nations. This was Paul's calling from the beginning, and Luke shows how that played out in real time and in the expansion of early Christianity. So I don't think it's a slight on Barnabas that he doesn't show up from here on out. But in verse 1 of chapter 16, we do meet another disciple who becomes even more familiar to us as Paul's co-laborer. This is where Paul meets Timothy, the young man who seemed to have been one of Paul's closest friends. In missionary efforts and pastoral ministry, Paul, Paul felt comfortable with Timothy enough to send him ahead and to leave him behind. It seems that Timothy was laboring faithfully in all the same ways in which Paul himself did so well. And Timothy was a marvelous Christian leader. Here in Acts chapter 16, our first introduction to Timothy is that he was one who was already well-spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. That's chapter 16, verse 2. And he was eager to join with Paul in his missionary efforts. Most strikingly, and not a little ironic, Timothy also shows himself to be completely selfless and invested in, in the work of effective ministry, so completely invested that he was willing to be circumcised. Now, the irony is that Paul is carrying a letter to these different churches and he's bringing Timothy along to deliver this letter, which explicitly says that Gentile believers do not have to be circumcised in order to be true Christians. And yet, Timothy volunteered to be circumcised in order to join Paul in evangelistic ministry. Now, why in the world would he do that? Well, Luke tells us there in verse 3 of chapter 16, it was because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy had a Jewish mom, but his dad was a Greek or a Gentile. And Timothy's gentileness might have put up roadblocks in the way of his evangelistic efforts. The short of this is that Timothy was wisely putting into practice the very heart of the letter that Paul and he were carrying. The letter explicitly freed Gentiles from the Old Testament law, but it also asked them to bear with the sensitivities of the consciences of their Jewish brethren. Timothy was a half-Jew. So the Mosaic Law was a tradition that he shared, at least in some sense. Though Luke doesn't tell us much about uh, how Timothy was raised on Mosaic Covenantal Judaism, we just don't know. But rather than turn up his nose at his Jewish Christian brethren for their weakness in wanting to still keep certain Mosaic customs, instead, Timothy subjected himself to a personally costly procedure that would graciously show his love toward those he wanted to see converted and matured in the faith. Brothers and sisters, this is wise or prudent discipleship. This is what gracious and loving Christianity looks like. Timothy didn't have to do this, but he did because he and Paul thought it would eliminate an obvious hindrance to ministry. But I wonder, Brother, sister, is this how you think about your Christian freedoms? Is this how you think about living under grace and not law? Are you eager to set aside your freedoms or at least to be quiet about them for the sake of others who may not understand for the sake of those whose consciences may be pricked differently than yours? I wonder how our Christian witness might be improved if some of us are more willing to endure discomfort and more willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of showing love and patience toward those we know are needlessly offended. We know their offense is not right. We know their offense is not just. And nevertheless, we put down our freedoms, set them aside to show love to those inside the church and outside. Number four, promoting unity. Chapter 16, verses 4 and 5 now. After Paul and Barnabas, they go their separate ways. And after Paul snagged Timothy, who embodied the spirit of the letter that Paul carried. Paul and Silas and Timothy were told they went on their way through the cities and they delivered to them, that is to the churches in these various cities, for observance or for keeping or for obeying the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Their goal was to visit the brothers, to see how they are, brothers being here churches, Christians, and to strengthen the churches by explaining, exemplifying, think of Timothy, And calling those church members to obey the contents of the letter that they brought with them. I'm going to say that again because that's really important. Their goal was to visit the brothers, to visit the churches, to see how they are, check in on them spiritually, and to strengthen them by explaining, exemplifying in their own persons and actions, and calling those church members to obey the contents of the letter of the apostolic decree. Isn't this a wonderful picture of pastoral ministry here? They carried the authoritative word of God in the form of an apostolic decree. This was a decision that was made by the apostles, and that's what they carried. We have today the complete collection of God's words through the apostles in the New Testament. This is what the New Testament is. And the pastoral mission today is the same As Paul's and his companions. We, pastors, point to the content of the divinely inspired word. We explain what's there as best as we can. We aim to live out the implications of God's word as consistently as we may in our own lives. And we call our hearers to do the same. Brothers and sisters, is this what you expect of your pastors? You ought to expect it from your pastors. Brothers, those of you who serve alongside me as pastors, is this what you're committed to doing? This sort of ministry necessitates humility, both on the part of the pastors and on the part of the church members. Church members must humbly admit that they need help in understanding and applying God's word to their lives. In other words, in order to be taught anything, you have to be teachable. Church members must humbly expect that some of their present beliefs will be discovered to be wrong. Do you understand this is one of the basic prerequisites for us growing together as a local body of believers? That pastors, if they are to instruct you, that it's going to necessitate your expectation that some of the things that you're taught are going to disagree with some of the things you think you know, and you're going to turn out to have been wrong. How else does a little child learn that two plus two equals four and that two, two plus three does not equal four? Church members must humbly expect that some of their present actions and even some of their present desires will prove to be sinful. How else can we be corrected? Don't you assume that you're not perfect? And church members must be willing with humility to open themselves up to instruction and correction from their pastors and from their fellow church members. We each have to play our part. You have to open your lives to your fellow church members. And you have to be willing to be instructed and corrected. So too pastors must show great humility in this kind of biblical and faithful ministry to church members. Pastors must humbly accept that some questions about applying Scripture are not as easily and clearly answered as others. Some stuff takes thinking through a lot more. And pastors must humbly call church members to repentance when they're clearly out of step with Scripture, regardless of what that church member might think of him. Don't think that pastors are always super excited to point out somebody else's sin or error. But recognize that pastors know they're sinners too. And the very fact that they're calling anybody else's error out takes a strong degree of courage and humility. And yet, pastors must also refrain from demanding repentance when what they think they see is actually a lack of wisdom and not necessarily sin. So pastors should always be able to point to a clear passage of Scripture when they say what you're doing is sin. Pastors most certainly, just like good dads, can say, I don't think that's wise. I think you're headed in a bad direction. But if ever a pastor calls for repentance, if ever a fellow brother or sister in Christ calls for repentance, you must not go that way, you must go this way, they had better have chapter and verse to cite. This requires humility. Both pastors and church members must humbly put down tribalism and anything remotely like an us versus them mentality. We are not voting constituents that have to be wooed by one party or another. We are all citizens of the kingdom of Christ who must give ourselves wholeheartedly to believing and obeying his word. We have to have the sort of posture with one another that if you show it to me in the Bible, I am eager to submit. You show me where Jesus commands me to do anything, where it seems like Jesus probably commands me to do this, and I'm ready quickly to hear what Jesus wants me to do, and I want to submit. The question isn't whether or not I'm going to submit to the commands of Christ. The question only is, what has Christ commanded us to do? Furthermore, we we must all be lovers of the truth, whatever that might be, more than we are fearful of the consequences. And this is particularly true when we feel ourselves trying to save face or to preserve our reputation. This is one of the lies from the pit of hell that keep us in bondage to sin all the time, brother, sister. That if somebody else knows about your sin struggle, if somebody else knows about what you've done wrong, If someone else knows about how you are giving in repeatedly to this thing that you know is killing you, they will think less of you. They will shun you. They won't love you. They will isolate you. This is from Satan himself who loves darkness. Sin grows in darkness. Error can only be addressed when it comes into the light. And brothers and sisters, as Christians We have to be ready to bring our yucky, messy lives into the light, whatever that might cost us because we care more about truth and freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ than we care about saving our temporary reputation. I know you're a sinner. You know I'm a sinner. Now that we've got that on the table, it should not surprise either of us that you or I sin. Let's go forward. Let's bear one another's burdens. Let's confess sin. Let's forgive one another. Let's show what repentance looks like in our own lives. Let's strive towards repentance in our own lives and let's do that as we bear each other's burdens together. How many churches and Christians have earned a reputation for being hypocritical and uncaring and selfish because they've been unwilling to humbly admit sin and deal with it openly. This seems incredibly relevant to the to the issues among the SBC Executive Committee right now. But for those of you who've been around FBC Diana for longer than a few years, know that we do not have a perfect record on this either. May God help us to be honest about sin, to deal with it humbly and openly. May God help us as a church to humbly walk together, all aiming to better understand and apply God's word to our lives. And may God help us to enjoy the good fruit that comes from such efforts. Look with me at verse 5 of Acts chapter 16. And let's see what the results were of Paul's and Silas's and Timothy's pastoral ministry among these Gentile churches. Luke wrote, so, at least that's what the ESV says, therefore, thus... The churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The Greek underneath makes the cause and effect relationship more emphatic. Verse five happened because of what was done in verse four. It was because Paul and Silas and Timothy delivered to the churches for observance, for keeping, for obeying the decisions that had been reached by the apostles that the churches were strengthened in the faith and that they increased in numbers daily. Their pastoral ministry, exemplifying and applying the divinely inspired apostolic word promoted or produced strength and growth among the churches. Good pastoral ministry, honest, consistent application of God's word to the churches produced growth and strength. Friends, here again, we have observed ordinary and mundane Christianity. It's ordinary and mundane, not because it's common in the world in which we live. It is absolutely not common in the world in which we live. But it's common and mundane, according to Scripture. It's Christianity 101. Recently, this ordinary and mundane Christianity was making disciples through raising up elders and seeing disciples made among churches. This was Acts fourteen twenty one to 28. And today it's been pastoral ministry and humble Christian living. We've seen that Christians don't always agree. And we've thought about ways that mature believers can bear with their weaker brothers and sisters, even non-Christians, out of love and wisdom. We've thought about some implications for pastoral ministry and the need for humility and honesty among both pastors and church members. The kind of Christianity that we're seeing on the pages of Acts isn't the sort of marketable and measurable Christianity that we might be used to seeing in modern America. No newspaper headline is going to read Pastor faithfully explains scripture with appropriate nuance and care. And no journalist is going to want a story about how three Christian ladies helped each other to resist sin more consistently over the last two years. But this is the sort of Christianity that will make us stronger and more numerous over time. May God help us to show love by invading each other's lives. May God help us to disagree with humility and love. May God help us to set aside our own preferences and comforts for the sake of Christian witness and may God, by His sheer grace, give us much fruit as we aim to do these things. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.